praise God for a speaker today. He is no stranger. In fact, he is, he is a familiar face to many of us because he is our, our youth pastor. And for those of you who would like to join the youth ministry, we encourage you to approach him uh, right after the service. So church, please help me welcome Pastor DJ Barrios. Good morning. Are you all glad to be here? Are we glad to be here? Amen. First of all, let me just greet Happy Father's Day to every father present this morning. Um, you won't wash the dishes today, and you won't sweep the floor. Anyway, um, our senior pastor given me this task to um, preach today, including yesterday. Uh, they're still in Manila right now. And uh, it's really a great privilege to be here, to, be, to stand in, behind this pulpit and share the Word of God. And it's a joy. It's only by grace. It's only by grace. And so this morning, I will be sharing from Ruth chapter 2. So this, this is the chapter, this is the passage that we will be studying. We will be meditating, reflecting this morning. Ruth chapter 2, so may request you, if you have a Bible with you, um, turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, and let's read from this chapter, and in reverence to the Word of God, can I request everyone to stand with me as we read Ruth chapter 2. So Ruth chapter 2, um, you can also read from the screen. And beginning verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to, the, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's, she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, the, mud, uh, the, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall Keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you will be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful morning. Indeed, you are our perfect Father. You are our good, good Father. We thank you, Lord, for lavishing us, O oh God, with your great love. And that love demonstrated when you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, for us. You have given your Son for us, O oh Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence. Your presence, O oh God, what makes our time meaningful and productive. Father, I also pray, Lord, even for, the, for every dad here, O oh Lord, this morning. Father, thank you for giving us earthly fathers. And I pray for them, O oh God, that may you continue, Lord, to bless them. May you continue, Lord, to speak to them. May they grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, that they may leave a legacy of faith to their children. I pray, Father, for them that may you strengthen them, O Lord, even, O God, as they work, 
May they emulate Christ and model Christ at home and at work. And that, Father, may you be glorified. And so, Lord, as we even, Father, study your word today, I pray, Lord, that may you grant us wisdom. Open our hearts and mind, O Lord, as we meditate your word. Speak to us, O God. We give the freedom to the Holy Spirit. O Spirit, may you move in our midst. And that after this message, may our faith be developed, our worship expand, and that may you be exalted in our midst. And Father, whatever will be achieved, do you be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I entitled my message, The Invisible Hand of God at Work. The Invisible Hand of God at Work. Now, how do we know that wind exists? How do we feel the air around us? Wind is defined as air set in motion by natural causes. Since wind is an invisible current, how can we be sure that it exists? Well, we can deduce wind's existence and presence by how it influences the surrounding objects. For an example, we see trees swaying, floods fluttering, clouds moving, and so on. We can also feel its force on our skin and hear it when it blows through certain instruments. So that's how we feel the air around us. That's how we know that wind exists. In the same way, when we talk about the existence of God, just because we do not see God, it doesn't mean that He's not there. It doesn't mean that he's not, He does not exist. In fact, He is actively at work in the lives of His people today. And this reality is what we are about to see as we study this book. Now, many Christians love this book, this book of Ruth. And simply because of this love story between Ruth and Boaz. But more than the love story between Ruth and Boaz, we see the love of God towards His people. And what I want to emphasize in this message is God's providential work. God's providential work. This is the main idea. And how this providential work of God comes to play in the story, we will see as we reflect upon this chapter. Now, before I proceed, let me just define to you the term divine confidence or God's providence. Divine providence or God's uh, providence. Now, let me first give you a short definition, a simple definition of divine providence. God arranging people, events, and many else to bring about His will or purpose. Now, let me repeat that. God arranging events, people, or many else to bring about His will or purpose. But let me also give you an expounded definition of what providence is or what God's providence is about. Providence is generally used to denote God's preserving and governing all things. God's providence extends to the natural world, the brute creation, and the affairs of man and of, and of individuals. It extends also to the free actions of men and things sinful, as well as to, their do, as well as to their good actions. As regards sinful actions of men, they are represented by, as occurring by God's permission 
and as controlled and overruled for good. Now, I got this definition from Easton's Bible Dictionary. Now, let me give you another definition of God's providence because I want to nail this down to you because this is very important. God, in eternity past, in the counsel of His own will, ordained everything that will happen. Yet, in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. The primary means by which God accomplishes His will is through secondary causes, that is, laws of nature and human choice. In other words, God usually works indirectly to accomplish His will. And I got this from GodQuestions.org. Now, this teaching stands in direct opposition to that idea that our universe is governed by chance or faith. Or this teaching or this idea about God's providence, this stands in direct opposition to that idea that our universe is run by chance or faith. So I want to have this definition of God's providence in our mind and in our heart as we delve into the story. And I want us to remember God's goal. God's goal is always to bring about His purpose, to bring about His good purposes. In this chapter, we will see how God's providence at work in three ways. And these are my main points. First, God providentially guides His people. And we will find this in verses starting verse 1 to 3. Secondly, God providentially provides for His people. And we will find this in verses 4 to 17. And lastly, God providentially rescues His people. And we will find this in verses 18 to 23. Now, let me give you the overarching theme of this book of Ruth. The overarching theme of this book is to reveal how God works providentially behind the scenes, bringing His will to pass with the emphasis on redemption by, by preparing the line of the Messiah even in the midst of a dark time. And we will see God working out this theme in the book. We will see this theme weave throughout the whole story, the whole, the whole event. And so, chapter 1 gives us the background of the story. If you have read Ruth before, this book before, in chapter 1 or at the beginning, you find Naomi as the central figure of the story. It describes what happened to her and to her family. Because of the famine in Israel during that time, they moved out to Moab. Naomi, with her husband and two sons, they moved to Moab. Yet there, she lost everything. Naomi lost everything. Her home, the fact that she moved out, she lost her home and they left. Her husband and her two sons as well. Her husband and her two sons died. And she was emptied. Naomi was emptied. She was literally emptied. Naomi hit rock bottom, especially the women during the time were totally dependent upon their husbands for security and stability. And Naomi joined the ranks of Israel's lowest members, the poor and the widow. She was embittered to the point that she did not even realize the blessing of having Ruth, her daughter-in-law, on her side. Now, on the other hand, in chapter 1, 
you see Ruth displaying a radical devotion to Naomi that in spite of her loss of a husband also as well, still he decide, she decided to cling to Naomi. There was no apparent benefit for Ruth. Nevertheless, she was so committed to Naomi. And so both of them went back to Israel, and we know why, because God allowed the crops to grow again. And the chapter 1 ended when they arrived in Bethlehem. And this time, in chapter 2, we are introduced with another character, and that is Boaz. If we are to imagine the scenario using a video camera, I just want us to imagine using, um, imagining the scenario using a video camera. And this video camera is, is focusing on, in chapter 1, focusing on Yomi and, his, and her family and what happened to them in Moab. And then uh, we also, in this camera also, we see Ruth's devotion to Naomi. And at the end of the chapter, we see Ruth and Naomi together went back to Judah. In chapter 2, this camera moves to focus from Naomi and Ruth, and this time to Ruth and Boaz. Now, in the first chapter, we read that God has blessed Naomi with Ruth. And in the second chapter, we will see that God has blessed Naomi and Ruth with Boaz. So, the first reality we're going to see in this chapter, in chapter 2, God providentially guides His people. Well, in verse 1, we find Boaz introduced by the narrator. He was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. He was wealthy. Boaz was wealthy. He was influential. He was well-known. The fact that he was much respected by the people. And the scene of chapter 2 started when Ruth begs Naomi to allow her to go to the field for her to glean among the ears of the grain or for her or that she may gather the leftover grain. And of course, because of what happened in chapter 1, we can assume that they're really impoverished. They do not have their husbands to provide for them. And from the long-distance travel, without much food left, and perhaps they have been so hungry. Now, let me give you the historical setting of this book. This story happened during the time of the Judges. Are you familiar with the book of Judges? And during, the, and during the time, and in the book of Judges, it was so dangerous. The time was so dangerous. And it was so dangerous, it was so risky to go out to the fields because of the situation at that time. At that time, it was a time of spiritual apostasy. People were so immoral. People were lawless. And the time of the Judges was the darkest time of Israel's history. A very dark period in the history of God's chosen people. As the book of Judges tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's why there was famine in the first place because it was part of God's dealing to them. And so the fact that Ruth was a widow placed her in a very dangerous situation. You may say that our time right now is dangerous already, but compared to this time during this dark period of Israel, it was way dangerous. Although this was Ruth's situation, 
But let me tell you, the invisible hand of God was upon her. So Ruth took the initiative to go out to the fields to find some leftover grain. And the reason why um, she went, because for them to have food to eat or so that they can sell it for money, but the fact that she was the one who went to the field because she wanted to take care of her mother-in-law. I mean, she loved Naomi. Ruth loved Naomi. Ruth wanted to serve Naomi. Ruth wants to honor her. In the story, we know in whose field she got herself into. And she got herself into whose field? The field of? Boaz. The narrator tells us here that it was the field of Boaz. And from here onwards, you know how the story unfolded. If you have read the the book before, you know how the story unfolded. Boaz and Ruth met, they got to know each other, and until they became sweethearts, lovebirds. And one might wonder, was this a coincidence? Do you think this just happened or quote-unquote happened? Do you think this was just an accident or was this God-ordained? Do you think it was God who ordered or guided the steps of Ruth so that she ended up in the field of Boaz? I mean, from all the fields in Israel where where Ruth can possibly glean, why the field of Boaz who happened to be the kinsman, the redeemer of Naomi? And do you think this was just a random event? Or was this orchestrated by God? Well, having in mind the theme of this book, I don't think this was an accident. I don't think this was coincidence. This was a God-ordained moment. How many of you here are married? Um, can I see the hands of all? Can, see, can I see the hand of all the husbands here? All right. Now, I want to address the husbands this morning. Now, when you first, when you, when you met your wife for the first time, could you still remember when was it and where? Well, maybe you met her for the first time. You met her maybe in a conference, in the church, maybe during an outing or a company outing where you first met your wife, or maybe it was, you know, an event that you both joined, and then you met, you know, you met there. And I remember a movie where this boy and girl met for the first time, and when they met for the first time, everything around them suddenly stopped. And the background starting to fade away. Was this your experience? Was it like it? Was it memorable? Was it memorable to you? I believe it was memorable to you. But let me ask you this question. You know what? If you're to look back in how you met your wife, do you think it was coincidence? Do you think it was just an accident that you met her? Or was it just a random event? Or would you admit it was a God-ordained moment? Was it a God-ordained moment? 
Well, I believe it was a God-ordained moment. I mean, I've attended wedding a lot of times and that every time during the, uh, during the making of vows, I always hear from the couple, you know, it's really God who allowed us to meet each other. It's really God who ordained this time for us to meet. Well, I want to address also to the wives. Well, for the first time you met your husband, was it an accident? Hello? Was it? And was it an accident? Was, was it just a coincidence? Or would you also admit that it was a God-ordained moment? Was it a God-ordained moment? Why is it that you don't like to answer? Yes, I believe it was a God-ordained moment. We believe it was a God-ordained moment. How about today? We find ourselves in the different situations, scenarios, where we ponder... Why am I here? Why am I in this place? Why am I in this situation? Why did I end up being here? Why am I in this place of worship today? Well, whether you are in a good situation or not, do you bother to think why you are there? Do you think you are there because of yourself? And just because of yourself only, you brought yourself there? Or do you think that you are there because in God's sovereignty... He allowed you, He permitted you, He guided you to be there for a purpose. And there's a reason. There's a purpose behind that, maybe to teach you, to correct you, to grow you, to sanctify you, to encourage you, to mold you, so that you can be used by God more for His greater glory. I think this is worth pondering. George Mueller said, God is behind the scenes and controls the scenes he is, in, he is behind. God not only orders our steps, He orders our stops. Now, let me share you a personal testimony, my testimony. You know, I grew up without, without having my parents with me. I mean, I became an orphan at the age of 14. My mother died when I was eight years old, and my father died when I was 14. So that's the time when I became an orphan. And it was not really easy or it was difficult for me to grow up without my parents, to graduate elementary, to graduate high school, to graduate college without my parents. In high, during high school, I got myself involved in a gang. We called ourselves hard boys, but we were more known rather as Capitol Boys because our territory was in front of the Capitol. I got myself into trouble, rumbles, and I was also involved in many vices as well. And my parents, I could say that my parents were not there to guide me actually. My parents were not there to, to lead me. But as I look back in the past, I believe God providentially guided me. That in spite of the absence of my parents, God providentially guided me. How did I know that? Because I'm here before you right now. Because I'm here preaching the Word of God. I mean, who could have imagined? I could not even imagine being here. But only because God providentially guided me. And so even though we don't see God, but He providentially guides His people. Well, not only God providentially guides His people, 
but also God providentially provides for His people. In verse 4, while Ruth was gathering leftover grain in the field, lo and behold, Boaz came. He came from Bethlehem. And here, the narrator is calling our attention and fixing our attention to this next scene. That's why when the narrator said, Behold, it means we are to fix our attention to this, the next scene, the entry of Boaz. We are told here that Boaz greeted his servants. May the Lord be with you. And they greeted him back. May the Lord bless you. Well, I don't know if Boaz called all the harvesters to come and join him. And then he greeted them and they greeted him back. Or perhaps... Maybe when they saw Boaz arrive, they went to him and, and Boaz greeted them and they greeted him back. Or maybe Boaz was lo- walking along his field and while walking along with his, uh, on his, uh, while walking along where the harvesters were walking, you know, they, they saw each other, they, they greeted each other. And we may not know ex- the, exact, the exact scenario at this time, but what is so interesting because among all the people, among the, uh, the harvesters, Boaz saw this unfamiliar woman. Why Boaz saw this woman? Maybe because she was beautiful? Was it love at first sight? She caught his attention? Or perhaps Boaz knew everyone and then noticed there was this woman he's not familiar with. And that's why it made him ask the person he placed in charge, whose young woman is this? Or in King James Version, whose damsel is this? And somebody made a comment that this suggests an attraction to Ruth. But whatever it is, Boaz was seeking information about her family or clan. And so in verse 6, the person in charge of the field replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. And from this time on, Boaz focuses his interests more on Ruth than on the harvest. Now we find here from the person in charge described, Ruth was working hard. She was not lazy or just waiting to be fed. So what we can learn about Ruth is not only she was loyal, not only she was God-fearing, but also she was a hard-working girl. And adding to it, we can see here that Ruth had a good conduct. She had a good working ethic for she asked permission before she could gather some grains. And she was not stealing others' grain, but she was just getting the leftover. Was this even permissible during that time? Just a cross-reference in Leviticus chapter Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 10, and also chapter 23, verse 22. In the Old Testament, there is what we call the law of the harvest, where God had given a provision for the poor or widow. God commanded farmers in Israel not to harvest the corners of the fields so that the poor and the needy, such as aliens, widows, and the orphans, could glean enough food for them to live. And this is why Ruth was getting the leftover, because Ruth knew about this law, and she took advantage of this. And so how can we describe Ruth then? She is a Proverbs 31 woman. 
I want all the ladies to take note of this, to take note the character of Ruth. Now Boaz, after hearing and learning who she was, told Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Now, let me try to explain this phrase by phrase for us to appreciate what Boaz was telling to Ruth. What we see here is a series of kindness Boaz had shown to her. Well, first, Boaz said, listen carefully, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Normally, the poor would move from one field to another field in order to glean. But in this case, she was allowed to stay. And that's already a blessing. Also, Boaz said, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Ruth was integrated to be one of his workers. It's like saying you won't work here as part-time, but you will work here as full-time. Also, Boaz said, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. During those times, there were no fences that divides the field. So Boaz was telling her to watch where she was going because she might end up being in another's field. And so we see here that Boaz was really concerned over his welfare, over her welfare. And this also describes that because Ruth has to follow the other, other harvesters, she would get the chance to have the best grains. She need not to go to the corners anymore. And indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. One Bible scholar commented, Boaz is hereby instituting the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. And this gives Ruth the protection. And then Boaz lastly said, when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Ruth was given the access to drink from the water provided for the workers. So here, we see not only she was integrated to the regular list of harvesters, but also she received protection and water to sustain herself. And this is not what Ruth expected. As far as what she planned, she was just there to gather the leftover grain. Yet she even got more than what she expected. And if you were in the case of Ruth, and this is the kind of kindness you've received, how would you respond? How would you respond? How did Ruth respond? In verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Then Ruth asked Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth was just indeed a foreigner, an alien, a stranger. She was not a Jew. She was not from Judah. And the fact that the narrator, the author, emphasized that she was a Moabitess speaks loud and clear that for the Jews, she was nobody. She was just like a stray dog. The Jews despised the Moabite people. And thus, for her to receive such kindness, it was mind-blowing for her. For Ruth, it was too much. 
She thought that she was undeserving to receive such kindness. She could not connect why Boaz did that to her. She was overwhelmed by the kind of attention given to her. She did not expect such blessing. And for Ruth, she did not see this coming. It was totally unexpected for her. It was a big surprise to her. But here again, we see the invisible hand of God at work behind the scenes. We see God's providence at work here. Let me ask you this question. How do you feel or react if somebody comes to you and tells you, I want to give you a big house? I want also to give you a car. I want to provide the tuition fee of your children until they graduate. I want to give you also grocery items worth, of five, worth five years and everything for free. How would you respond? How will, what, how will, what will you feel? Will you be overjoyed? Will you be surprised? Will you be shocked? Well, you might say this, might, this is a joke, right? This must be a joke or what in the world? I mean, you would probably feel surprised. You know, today there's this new slang among the young people. And this new slang, the word is shukt. Have you heard that word before? Shukt. I find it weird, but this relates to being shocked or surprised. I'm shukt. Will you be shukt? Will you be surprised? Why me? Why? It would probably take time for, for it to sink in, right? And it would be so wonderful if that, if that would come true, or it would be so wonderful it would come true, right? But whether you would like to have that happen to you or not, let me remind you, my brothers and sisters, when salvation came to you, you had a similar kind of experience. In fact, a way better experience where it, it was so lavish, it was so extravagant. The love that came to you, the mercies that came to you with an infinite measure was so lavish, was so extravagant. The salvation that came to you was so rich and free. And God has blessed us richly. And what we see here between Boaz and Ruth is a picture of us, the church, and Jesus Christ. When God granted us salvation in Jesus, it was the greatest thing that happened to our lives and we did not expect it. We did not expect salvation to come to us. A spiritually dead person, a spiritually blind person could not expect salvation to come. Well, if there's a group of people who expects it, only the self-righteous people expect, expect uh, salvation for, for they think that they deserve to be saved. But for us, when salvation came to us at first, it was a surprise, right? I mean, when we got saved, it was a surprise to us. Out of the 7 billion people in the world, like Ruth, we asked, Lord, why me? Why me, God? Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? Why me? Why have you saved me from all the people in this world? Why me? What did I do to deserve such attention? For I am nothing. I am an undeserving person. And though we cannot fully understand, but we just wonder and be amazed about it. 
My brothers and sisters, the natural response is worship. And just like Ruth, we bow down before God, and from our hearts we say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for looking at me with kindness. Thank you for favoring an undeserving person like me. For such favor we receive from the Lord. And after her inquiry, we find the reply of Boaz. So when Ruth asked Boaz why, to which Boaz responded by telling her, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The reputation of Ruth precedes her, of course, in a good way. Her loyalty to Naomi her trust to God was made known among the people in Bethlehem. For a Moabite woman to possess this kind of this quality and devotion, for me, this was a slap on the face of the Jews. This was a great irony. Why? It should have been the Jews who should possess this quality in the first place because they were the covenant people of God. They were God's chosen people. They should have been the people who possess this quality and the kind of devotion? Well, just a sidebar, we find many ironies in the Bible. <laughs> Regarding the Jews, one example is Jonah. Just like what our senior pastor preached a few Sundays ago, wherein we, we, we learned that although he was a prophet, Jonah was a prophet of God, but he was rebuked by, sailor, by the sailors who were on a higher moral ground than him. And not just Jonah, but also the Pharisees in the Bible. Although the Pharisees studied the law of Moses, known to be the Bible scholars at their time, yet they reject the truth about Jesus Christ. How about us? As we look at our life right now, as, Christ, as a Christian, do we see an irony? Do we see something different between our profession of faith and how we live our lives, how we behave, how we talk, how we interact, how we respond to pressures? Do we see an irony? Again, something to ponder about. And going back to Boaz, he commended Ruth's unselfish love to Naomi and her sacrifice and faith in the Lord. Boaz was declaring blessing to Ruth, telling Ruth that God will reward her with full blessings. And God was indeed blessing Ruth already through the person of Boaz. Boaz became the conduit of God's blessing. In chapter 1, God, Ruth had shown loving kindness to Naomi. In chapter 2, God rewarded Ruth, whereby this time it was through the person of Boaz who had shown kindness to Ruth. In verse 12, we find here Boaz used a figure of speech called zoomorphism, God under whose wings, comparing an aspect of God to an animal. It just simply means in whose protection she had come for shelter. And this gives us a clue that Ruth was really a believer of Yahweh. 
Because she sought refuge in God. Ruth trusted God for her safety and security. And Ruth was right to do that because no one is more secure than the one who rests in God's almighty hand. Ruth trusted the invisible hand of God. And how about us today? Do we trust God's providence? Do we trust God's invisible hand? Do we seek refuge in God? Where do we find, depend for security and safety? Do we believe God is at work even though we don't see Him? Do we see God at work in your life today or in the circumstances today? If not, and maybe because you have not trusted God enough, or maybe because you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and submitted your life to Him as your Lord. And the reason why you don't see Him at work. And why not make that decision today if not? I mean, why not make the decision to trust Jesus Christ as your, for your salvation, submit to His Lordship, surrender to His life, surrender to His plans, and trust His plans for your life. And you won't be disappointed. Continuing to verse 13, we read Ruth expressed her gratitude. She was en encouraged by the kindness of Boaz. She affirmed that she was highly favored for she was made recipient of such kindness even though she was completely undeserving. Ruth was humble enough to recognize such grace, such kindness she received. And this touched her heart. This comforted her heart. This uplifted her spirit. And while I was reflecting at this verse, I said, this is the experience of every believer of Christ as well. I mean, we receive such grace from God, and every time we are reminded of God's grace, we are encouraged, right? Every time we're reminded of God's grace, we are encouraged by it. And is this not what believers are called to do, to encourage each other? Hebrews 10, 24, 25 tells us, and let us consider how to steer up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word encouragement here comes from a Greek word, parakaleo, which means, or that is, to come alongside, to encourage, to give strength, to, ins to instill or inspire someone with courage or cheer, and so to comfort and this is actually the equivalence of the word used here by Ruth. My brethren, we have this responsibility and calling to encourage one another, to exhort one another with the word of God. We have this responsibility and calling to remind each other of the gospel, to remind each other of God's promises. I mean... Sundays is one, to be, one way and one avenue to be encouraged and to have the opportunity to encourage each other. But Sunday is not enough. Once a week is not enough. And that's why we need to join small groups. We need to join a ministry. We need to join Bible studies, prayer meetings, where we find 
avenue or these are avenues where we can be encouraged and also be an encouragement to somebody. And I hope we, may, may we respond to this calling. And continuing to verse 14, during mealtime, Boaz called out Ruth and invited her for a meal. Could this be a call for a date? Well, whatever it is, Boaz continues to bless Ruth. Even Boaz served her. So she, she ate along with the other harvesters. She was not treated as an outsider. And after she had her meal, she got up right away to work again. And once more, we find here that she's working hard. She's not wasting her time. And when she went back to, to work again, Boaz gave instructions to his servants, telling them, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. We find here at this point of time the perpetual kindness of Boaz to Ruth. Telling his servants, let's help her. Let's not give Ruth a hard time. Let's just bless her. Boaz was intentionally making Ruth's work lighter, but at the same time increasing its reward. Wow, what a picture of God's grace to us. When evening came, then she beat out what she had gleaned. We are told here the amount of grain she got. It was nearly a full sack of grain. Somebody said the equivalent of it was at least half a month's wages just for one day. Or it was enough to sustain Ruth and Naomi for many days. So Ruth took it with her and even had some leftover food from the lunch. At the end of the day, here we find Ruth receiving blessing after blessing, grace upon grace. In the same way with us, when we got saved, we received blessing after blessing, grace upon grace, grace being piled up on us. Amen? According to syndicated columnist L.M. Boyd, an out-of-work and penniless man was strolling along San Francisco Beach one day in 1949. The man... Jack Worm found a bottle with a note inside that read, To avoid confusion, I leave my entire estate to the lucky person who finds this bottle and to my attorney, Barry Cohen. Share and share alike. The courts accepted the document as the last will of Daisy Singer Alexander, heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune. She had thrown it into the Thames River in London 12 years earlier. Somehow drifting across the oceans, it was ashore. Uh, it was it was ashore in California, where Jack Worm went from a penniless indigent to the possessor of over six million dollars of in cash and singer stock. Suddenly, he had more than enough, and just like Ruth the Moabite, a destitute widow also just happened to walk beside the barley field of a rich, compassionate benefactor who later on became her husband. Naomi, um, instead of gleaning barley to feed herself and Naomi, she now had more than enough to eat because of the kindness of Boaz. And what a picture of every saved sinner 
each of us, just like Ruth, spiritually broken, spiritually bankrupt. And so even though we don't see God, but God providentially provides for His people. Lastly, not only God providentially guides and provides for His people, but also God providentially rescues His people. And so now we come to verse 18. After the long day, Ruth went back to Bethlehem. And we could probably imagine, though Ruth was tired, physically tired, exhausted, haggard, but she has this ecstatic joy in her heart, the excitement to go home, to tell her mother-in-law what she got for her, and to tell her the story of how she met a gracious man. On the other hand, Naomi, in just my imagination, perhaps Naomi was already waiting for Ruth to come home, and it was already dark, and probably Naomi was already worried about Ruth. And Naomi thinking, what if something happened to my daughter-in-law? She's not yet home, and, and it, it's already dark. Or perhaps Naomi thinking, was she able to glean grain for us? Will there be food on the table tomorrow? Perhaps having all these thoughts going on in her head. Then all of a sudden, here Ruth, here's Ruth carrying a big sack with her. And when Naomi saw that, she asked, where did you get that? That's so many. Of course, Naomi did not expect that amount of grain as well. And to which she said, anyway, whoever took notice of you, whoever helped you, God bless that person. Of course, Ruth, who was so excited to tell to Naomi the story, replied, Mommy, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi, Boaz? Boaz! She said, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. For Naomi, this was a game changer. Why? Because when she heard about Boaz's kindness to Ruth, it changes the mood of the story. Naomi here was able to see God's providence at work, or she was able to recognize God's hand moving. And that's why she said, the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead, Naomi was spot on to recognize God's providence. And the kindness here refers ultimately to God's kindness upon them, even towards their dead husbands. Now Naomi begins to see that God was doing something good out of the bad. She perceived the invisible hand of God at work in the life of Ruth. And she sees the providence of God. This is it. God is moving. And from here on, Naomi's bitter state begins to change. As what Warren Worsby said, God used Ruth to turn Naomi's bitterness into gratitude, her unbelief into faith, and her despair into hope. And if we are to fast forward the story, we are going to see that Naomi will no longer be called as the bitter Mara, but the blessed woman. If you read the whole book, you will see the emotional state of Naomi. It started with sorrow, but ended with joy. 
And just a short application, my brothers and sisters, whenever we go through tough times, whenever we go through bitter experiences in this life, let's always remember God's providence. As we do so, it will free us from the bitter experience of it. Although we may not see God's invisible hand, but He is working things out for our good, we just have to trust God and see the brighter end. Psalm 35 For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And now we come to the climax of the story. This is the climax of the story. After Naomi learned about Boaz's kindness to Ruth, Naomi revealed a very important detail about Boaz. Naomi revealed an important description about Boaz. Naomi revealed who Boaz really was. Boaz was was their kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? Well, the Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is Goel. Goel was a relative who came to the rescue. The word Goel includes the idea of redemption or deliverance. A Goel was usually a prominent male in one extended, extended family. He was the official guardian of the family's honor. He could buy back family lands or properties sold in times of hardship. He could pay the redemption price for family members sold into slavery. If he was eligible to marry, he could revive the family lineage when someone died without an heir. The Goel could do this by marrying the widow and fathering offspring who would inherit the name and the property of the one who died. And this was known as the law of liberate marriage, the law of kinsman redeemer. Here in the story, Boaz would become Ruth's Goel. Boaz would redeem Ruth's life from poverty and widowhood. Naomi understood the potential of this, who Boaz is, how, what Boaz can do, what Boaz can do to her. He would be her protector, her deliverer, her provider. And that's why when, when, when Naomi perceived this, she told Ruth to follow Boaz's instructions and, and to stay exclusively in his field. And that's why we, we read this in the last verses. Of course, Ruth followed and did stay until the end of the harvest season. And so here, we see God providentially rescues His people. And in the case of Ruth and Naomi, God provided them Boaz as their kinsman redeemer. Now, I'd like to point this out, that just as Ruth had a kinsman redeemer, we too as well, we have our kinsman redeemer And every kinsman redeemer in the Bible was in effect an illustration, a living illustration of the position and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our true kinsman redeemer. Jesus who died for us on the cross, gave up his life for us, became our redeemer, redeemed us from the bondage of sin and death. He made us his own bride and blessed us for all generations. And when God took notice of us, brothers and sisters, when God found us, what was our state? What was our condition? 
When God found us, we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually, we were spiritual beggars. We were spiritually poor. We were strangers of the covenant. We were without God. We were helpless and hopeless. Yet God looked upon us with great love and compassion. He brought us in. He took us in and made us to be His own children. Jesus, by being our Redeemer, He made us to be, to be His own kinsmen. My brothers and sisters, Ephesians 1 tells us, Paul speaks about God's manifold blessings, many blessings to us, wherein He chose us, predestined us for adoption. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. And all because of this Redeemer who loved us and who died for us at Calvary. The reason why you are here today the reason why you became a Christian, the reason why you became a believer in Jesus Christ, it was not because of chance. It was not because of accident. It was not a random event. The reason why you came to know the Lord, you are here because of God's providence. The reason why you came to know Jesus, because He arranged the circumstances in your life, and then God led you to Jesus Christ. He provided you faith to believe in Jesus Christ for you to be saved from a Christless eternity in hell. And this is the truth, my brothers and sisters. This is the reality. All because of grace, all because of Jesus Christ, our greater Boaz. Amen? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I mean, when we understand God's providence... And we can, we can see that, you know, we owe everything to God. Therefore, in conclusion, even though Ruth was not a Jew but a Gentile, a foreigner, yet we see God bless her, use her, and the best part, made her a plan, made her a part of His glorious plan. And what plan? The bringing of the Messiah came from her line was our ultimate redeemer. I mean, Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David. And from King David to many generations after comes the Lord Jesus Christ. What a turnaround. What a privilege. And thinking about how God works providentially behind the scenes, bring His will to pass with the emphasis on redemption by preparing the line of the Messiah even during dark times. What comes to my mind is the verse, is the verse we find in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. My brothers and sisters, it tells us here in all things, in all things, not just some things, but in everything, God works for the good. God is never out of control. God is the master weaver of every circumstances, whether good or bad. And for the purpose to bring about His good, not our 
own definition of good, but the good that He has in mind to conform us to the image of Christ and the expansion of His kingdom. Thank God that God does not leave us simply to work things out by ourselves. He is there to help us. But let me just clarify this to you as well. I want to clarify and make it clear that we should not use God's providence to justify our stupid decisions, to rationalize our mistakes. As what we see in the life of Ruth, she was faithful, she was loyal, she was obedient, she had an unwavering faith in God in spite of her difficult situation. She did not compromise. Because of it, God blessed her. God bless her faithfulness, God, her, her loyalty to Naomi. God bless that. And therefore, even we may not understand the current, the current situation, let's remember that God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In light of this truth, may we trust and obey God not just in good times, but as well as in bad times, for our God is a sovereign God. And I want to end, my brothers and sisters, by sharing a true and inspiring story. I just want to end with this true and inspiring story. All of us are familiar with ISIS, right? With ISIL. We know of the crisis in the Middle East and how it brought destruction and thousands of lives lost because of the jihadist. Well, let me read to you excerpt, or just an excerpt from the article I've read from the Gospel Coalition. This is about what God is doing today in the lives of the people in Iran. Everyone loves a good story. As Christians, we especially love stories that tell us how, when all seems lost, God makes a way. One such story is about the church in Iran, and it's one of the greatest stories in the world today. It's a simple, simple story that can be summarized in just two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world, and it is influencing the region for Christ. The, the Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon become scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. And many feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. As a result, 
many Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some say more than one million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, last year, the mission research organization Operation World named Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical, evangelical church in the world. According to the same organization, the second fastest growing church is in Af Afghanistan and Afghans are being reached in part by Iranians since their languages are similar. The story God is writing of Iran for Iran reminds us that we have every reason to rejoice and remain confident in, the, in our sovereign Lord and in the power of His gospel. Jesus will build His church. It's a promise. C.H. Spurgeon said, God has only one purpose for all history but one. There are many scenes, but it is one drama. There are many pages, but it is one book. There are many leaves, but it is one tree. There are many lords but men, and many rulers, yet there is but one empire, and God the only potentate. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's remember these three facts. This, let's remember these three realities. God providentially guides His people. God providentially provides for His people, and God providentially rescues His people. I may not know what you're facing today. I may not know what you're going through today or where you are at this point of time of your life. But if there's one thing that we can be sure about, the invisible hand of God is always at work, is always at work. And in God's goal, to bring about His good purpose. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, take heart, keep the faith, and glorify the God Almighty. Let's pray. Can we all stand as we pray? Heavenly Father, indeed, O God, You are sovereign, O Lord, over all the circumstances today. You're never surprised, O God. Father, forgive us for doubting your providence. Forgive us, O oh God, if we see lightly, Lord, of what you are doing today. That even in the midst of chaos, Father, we know that you are still in control. Father, we thank you, Lord, for loving us, for taking care of us. Thank you, Lord, for giving your Son, Jesus Christ, as our kinsman redeemer who lived the perfect life for us who sacrificed, sacrificed himself on the cross for us who have trodden the path of suffering for us and just Lord to save us just Lord to make us his kinsman and Father we are so thankful, Lord God, for your sovereign grace, for electing us and choosing us, Lord, 
adopting us, O Lord God, to be your very own children. Father, I pray that may you increase our faith, increase, O Lord, our dependence on you. May we find our safety and security in you alone, O God, for you alone is almighty. Father, I pray for your blessing for your people. I pray, Lord, that may you guide them, may you remind them, O Lord, of who you are, and that indeed, O Lord, we are all victorious in Jesus Christ. Father, whatever has been achieved, do you be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we sing our last song, let me just bring you to Psalm 37 because somewhat this summarizes what I was sharing about. Let me just read to you a few verses from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. For the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. Turn from evil and do good, and you will live in the land forever. For the Lord loves justice, and He will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever, but the children of the wicked will die. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from His path. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily, steadily along His path. He will honor you by giving you the land. He will, he, you will see the wicked destroyed. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them and they find shelter in Him. When David composed this psalm, he was in his old age. He was already old. The psalm reflects the wisdom David had gleaned from, his, from years of walking with God. David looked upon and reflected from the past. And here we find God's promises. Here we find a real, real testimony, the testimony of David. And from the verses we see, David testified that God providentially guided him, God providentially provided for him, and God providentially rescued him. And my brothers and sisters, the God that David served and worshipped is the same God we serve and worship as well today. That if God was faithful in the past, He is faithful today, and He will continue to be faithful tomorrow and sovereign tomorrow. For our God is a faithful God. And as we now sing this last song, let's worship.